Merry Christmas. Do not let the color of my coat distract you from the Christmas story this morning. Open your Bible to the book of Isaiah, the same book that we've been studying here for the past several weeks. Let me ask you as you're finding your place there, how many of you are parents? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Raise your hand if you've had a child in the last five years. Where are those parents? Yes, we see those bags under your eyes. We see how tired you are. Is there anybody that's had a child in the last year? Is anybody? You got a little baby in your home? Um, can you all remember as parents the excitement and the terror when the birth announcement was given to you. That's usually like the mom coming home and telling the dad, and, and um, I, I guess it really wouldn't be the other way around ever, but um, there, there is a sense of excitement around the hope and the celebration, and the, but it leads to a lot of questions, right? Like, first question is like, how are we gonna afford this? Um, the second question is, how much space will it take um, and is there room, is there room in the inn for this, this child who's coming? And how disruptive is this child going to be? And no matter what your estimation of how disruptive the child was going to be, you found out it was a thousand times more disruptive than you had anticipated. Well, um, we're going to find out today that um, the, the history of the world is filled with birth announcements. And we're going to see that here. Of course, we're talking about the birth of the Savior. A lot of people think that the Christmas story is found there in Luke or Matthew, like we read this morning to open the service. We're going to find out that it began a long time before that. And the announcement that was given was given at a very dark season. So let's, let's familiarize ourselves with the culture. Uh, the, the, those that received the birth announcement 700 years before the child actually came in the book of Isaiah. I want you to get your eyes on Isaiah chapter 7. Let me remind you of what happened in chapter 6. Do you remember Isaiah got a new view of God? He got a new view of his sin. He got a new view of God's grace in cleansing that sin. And then he got a new mission. And the question we're left with at the end of chapter 6 is, how can the people of God, the entire nation of Israel, receive that kind of vision of God and that kind of cleansing. How is God going to cleanse his people? Now, let me show you how dirty they were, beginning in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. It says, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Let me stop there and remind you, the king at this time was Ahaz. Remember in chapter 6, King Uzziah had died, and so now um, the grandson of Uzziah was Ahaz, and he was an awful king. He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. He brought judgment. He invited the judgment of God. And they're in a miserable situation under the new administration of King Ahaz. It says, in those days, um, it says, um, it says and, and Pekin, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. So you got this picture of this, this invading northern kingdom lined up on the borders, getting ready to invade from the outside the people of God. It's a dark day. Verse two, when the house of David, of course, those are the people of God, the, the covenant people of God. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim and the heart of Ahaz uh, and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. So Isaiah is a poet, man. He knows how to string some words together to evoke some emotion within you. And of course, what we're seeing here is a fearful people. They know their kingdom is crumbling from the inside because of their idolatry, their immorality. They turned their back on God. They had forsaken God. They were far from God. They no longer wanted God to be anywhere near them. They were trusting in themselves. They were trusting in foreign alliances. And then 
They're threatened from outside as God is sending these invading armies. The question that we're left with, is this going to be the last chapter of the Bible? Is the story of redemptive history over? Is God not going to fulfill His promise to send a Savior? Is God not going to fulfill His promise to give them this land and this great nation that are going to bless the peoples of the world? The question is, is God no longer with us because of our sin? That's the question that was asked. Now, let's talk about some of this Christmas story in terms of a timeline, okay? Let's put a timeline up here, and we're going to tell the Christmas story from eternity past to eternity future. This won't take long at all, okay? So let's think about eternity past all the way back in the beginning, of course. God created the heavens and the earth. That's the way the Bible opens up, and then we find out He creates man in His own image. He creates them male and female, and He creates them in a way that they can reproduce and have children. So we have the creation, and then we have this first mother, Eve, and then we find out that Eve was tempted by the serpent. This was a kind of an embodiment of evil, the embodiment of Satan there who comes and tempts Eve. Eve gives in to the temptation. Her husband is not protecting her, so failure on his part. And then there's this curse that comes on the world. So we're asked, we're like, is, is God no longer with his people? Is he going to banish them? Is like, where's God going to be? God gives a promise, but he directs the promise to the serpent. This is what he says in Genesis 3.15. I, God, will put enmity, the word enmity is like war, warfare, battle, there's always going to be tension, battle for control. I will put enmity between you, that's the mother representing all of mankind, there's going to be a war between you, I'm sorry, you is the serpent in this context, you, the serpent and the woman, between Satan and mankind, there's going to be enmity between you and between you, your offspring and her offspring. So we have the first birth announcement here. There's going to be more people. There's going to be more Eves, more Adam, little Adams and little Eves, and they're going to have grandchildren, and then we're all going to show up in 2020. So her offspring, this is us, okay? So there's a war between the offspring of the serpent. So evil embodiment. There's this war between evil and good, God's people and evil. But here's the promise. He... That's the offspring of the mother, the birth announcement. He, there's going to be a child who shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right? So we have two body parts here, a head and a heel. If your head get, gets bruised, that's not a good day. That's like a fatal wound. If your heel gets bruised, that's going to heal up okay. Get it? Heals heal, right? So you got these two bruises, which bruises are blood flow to the wrong places, right? So there's going to be blood involved. This is all the way back in the, like the third page of your Bible. We have a prediction of Jesus Christ who's going to come as man and as God, who's going to be the offspring of a woman. It's going to be Mary, but she's going to be the great, 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 great granddaughter of Eve, just like we all are. And this offspring is going to deal a fatal blow to the head of evil. That happened on the cross. That is part of the Christmas story, and we find it on the third page of our Bible. This is why it's so important. This is why I wanted you to read the Bible in 100 days, because you see the whole picture real quick. So the story continues here, and we find that we are introduced to a man named Abram. He falls in love. He gets married to a woman named Sarah, but Sarah is unable to have children. There was no birth announcement ever for Sarah. She's into her ninth decade and God says there's going to be a birth announcement. Genesis chapter 17, God speaking to Abram, no, stop believing that she's not going to bear a child. She will. Bera, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. There's a birth announcement. And you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter because she laughed at God. I don't know if you laughed when you got the birth announcement, but Sarah 
laughed. She named her child laughter. We're going to find out names are very important in the Bible in this message for sure. And here's the promise. I will establish my covenant. When you hear the word covenant, think promise. A one-sided promise. I will establish my covenant with him, this offspring. An everlasting covenant. So it's not just in the terms of his lifetime, but for every lifetime, every generation to come, every birth after this. An everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. It's a birth announcement. So we find out that this family, they have children. It's a large family. It turns into a large nation. God's promises are being fulfilled. Pretty soon there's kings and kingdoms. The kingdoms divide. There's bad kings like Ahaz that invites God's judgment. The kingdoms crumble. And it's looking like the promise is not going to be fulfilled. We get to the last few kings of this kingdom. And that's when we get to Isaiah. And in chapter 7 of Isaiah, you can look at it here or you can look at it right in the context of your own Bible. Verse 14, right after the verses we read about the whole nation shaking like trees, they're so afraid. Is God going to forsake us? How are we going to get out of this mess? Is there ever going to be a cleansing? And God says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The sign is for Ahaz. The sign is a pointer, just like the signs on the highway that lead you to the destination you want to go to. There's going to be a sign. It's going to tell you to go this direction. Here's the sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There's another birth announcement. And he shall be, and, 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 and shall call his name Emmanuel. We've sung that name over and over here this morning. Most of you probably already know what that name means, but realize these people are asking the question, will God no longer be with us? Has our sin permanently separated us from God? God sends the sign to answer the question, no, a virgin shall conceive and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God's going to fulfill his promises. So, 700 years before the Virgin Mary conceived, Isaiah prophesied that the Virgin Mary would conceive. Now, there's a lot of debate, scholars kind of debate what that word means and, and how all this lines up. But one thing that we do know is by the time we get to the New Testament. And we open to the first chapter of the New Testament. Matthew, a follower of Jesus, records a statement that an angel gave to the family of Mary. And it says this, she, Mary, will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means God saves. He continues, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Guess which prophet he was referring to? Isaiah. So Matthew interprets Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 7 verse 14 and says all that was happening to Mary was happening to fulfill the promise and the prophecy of Isaiah. He even quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then, just in case you didn't interpret that correctly, he tells us what the name means, God with us. Have you ever felt what the people of Isaiah's day we're feeling, I'm just not sure God is still with us. I mean, we've sinned so greatly. The conditions are so bad. I haven't paid much attention to God. I've actually wandered far from God. And maybe late at night as you lay your head on the pillow, you wonder, I wonder if God is still with me. 
I, I wonder if I've hacked him off so much for the final time. He's turned his back. He's gonna go help somebody else. He's no longer with me. I see him blessing everybody else. I just don't think he would care anymore to have anything to do with me. And the message that Isaiah sent to the kingdom of Israel is the same message God wants to send to you today. It is this, God is still with us. We get to the first Advent, the first Christmas. We use the word Advent sometimes to describe this season. It's an Advent because it's an adventure is what it was. And so we finally get to the first Advent and this was the arrival of Jesus, the first Christmas. He went on to, to um, go to the cross, of course, and now we look forward to the second advent when Jesus will come again. So on the timeline of redemption history, we, we weren't around back here. We weren't around back here. And I'm really glad we didn't have to live through all of that back there. Somewhere in here is 2020. We live in the time in between the two advents. We live in the space between the already Jesus has come and the not yet, Jesus has not yet come again. We live in the space in between. And the space in between is often when we ask the question, is God with me? Where is he? I mean, conditions are getting worse and it's about time for him to show up. These are the questions that our hearts wrestle with. And Isaiah speaks to us, as Mike has already told us here this morning, this message was not just for people in Isaiah's day, it was for people in our day. Isaiah goes on to tell us some characteristics about this son. Flip over in your Bible a couple of chapters, Isaiah chapter 9. Look down, he continues to comment on this child. He says, a virgin shall conceive, you're going to bear a, a child, his name is going to be Emmanuel, but Isaiah is going to tell us, this child had a lot of names, and he's going to tell us about four names that this child had. I Isaiah says Emmanuel means God with us, but notice what else he says in Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born. Interestingly, it says this child's gonna be born, which means this child's gonna be human. He's gonna have an earthly mother. He's going to be born. He's not gonna be hatched. He's not gonna mysteriously descend from a cloud. He's gonna be born just like you were born. Really messy event, right? But then look at the next thing he says. To us, a son is given. Not only is he going to be born, he's going to be given, which implies he existed before he was born. He existed in eternity past. And someone is going to give a gift to us who is going to be born. Of course, we find out later on this side, we know that's, Jesus being born from the Virgin Mary. But he's not only going to be human born, he's going to be divine given. It goes on. It says the government shall be upon his shoulders. All in favor of better government? Anybody like, like can we just get somebody to do a little better job with the government, right? That's that no matter what government or whatever nation you're in, the governments lack a lot. And the promise for people who are living with bad government is that Jesus one day is going to put all of the governments of all of the world just like a little toy and just kind of rest it right there on his shoulder. That's the promise. We, we, we are not dependent upon government. We're dependent upon the one who has the government sitting on his shoulder. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name. We, I thought we already knew his name. It was going to be Emmanuel, right? Well, that's, that's part of his name, but he's got four other names listed here in verse six. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Interestingly, the child is going to be called Everlasting Father. Everlasting doesn't just mean from now until eternity future. Everlasting means he's always existed in eternity past. The child is an everlasting father. Crazy, mind-blowing experience. The last name is Prince of Peace. Let's talk about those four names. The title of the message is simply the promise is God is still with us. 
It was true in Isaiah's day. It was true on the day Jesus was born 2,020 years ago. And it is today still true. God is still with us. And we know that because of the names given to Jesus 700 years before he was born. First of all, let's think about this. Is, go ahead and put that slide up. A wonderful counselor is still with us. That's his first name, a wonderful counselor. What do you, th- what do you think of when you think of a counselor? How many of you ever been to counseling? Raise your hand. Just admit it, okay? How many of you haven't been, but you should have gone years ago, okay? How many of you, and if you didn't answer in the affirmative in the first to you, you're the one that needs the most, all right? Um, one of the best things about 2020 is Andrew and I have gotten some counseling. We've, we've actually been talking to a counselor and we, we need to help. I need to know how to love Andrew. Andrew needs to know how to love me because we have issues and you do too. We all need counseling. I'm, I'm so grateful for the biblical counselors in our church. We just kind of say we're not a church with biblical counselors. We're a church of biblical counselors. We just counsel one another. It's what it means to live in community. We're all jacked up. We're all a mess. And, and counselors, um, I don't know about you, but like even Christian counselors, so many of them don't even offer biblical counsel. There's a lot of people that say, I, I need counseling, but then you give them counsel and they don't like the counsel. So they want the counseling, but not the counsel. It just means that we need to lean in to Truth, I am not a wonderful counselor. I, I, my counsel is generally, I hear your problem and I tell you to repent. That's my counsel. Just, f- f- you know, repent and believe. That will fix everything, right? And uh, I'm so grateful for people that are wired differently and Pastor Nathan does such a great job training other counselors and stuff. So grateful. But listen, they will tell you the best of their counseling is, meh, you know, just... God's given us his counsel. And when we stray from it, we stray from the truth, that's when we end up needing counseling. Now listen, there is no shortage of counselors out there, okay? They, they go under a new name nowadays. They're called influencers, okay? And they're trying to get you to behave in certain ways and, and believe certain things. But listen, that's why Proverbs chapter one tells us this. He says, Do not, he says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. That's the first verse of the book of Proverbs that tells you he's getting ready to offer you godly counsel, but there's no shortage of counsel out there. Most of it is ungodly counsel. So let's give a definition to the word counsel. Here it is. Counsel is simply direction that leads us out of darkness, restores our joy, breaks our bondage, and torches our past. Think about it being in terms of direction. If you don't know where you're going and you ask for directions, then somebody's gonna help you get from where you currently are to where you want to go. That's what a counselor does. He gives you directions. Now. The best counselors are people who have been where you are. People that haven't been where you are are really not great at helping you get out of where you are to where you want to go. The good news about Jesus is he's been where you are. That's the whole great news about him being with us. He's been in the places where we have been. So it's direction that leads us out of darkness. Look here at verse two in Isaiah chapter nine. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Did you hear that verse of the song we sang earlier? Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah's great light. Light. The lyric of that song came from this verse. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's Jesus. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Now, now remember, this was written 2,700 years ago. What happened to people 2,700 years ago when the sun went down? Did they all flip on their lights? Did they pull, all pull out their cell phones and hit the flashlight button? No, 
there was no artificial light back in the day. When the sun went down, the people went down. It was dark and it was dangerous to operate in the dark. If you notice it's dangerous to operate in the dark, you tend to run into things. You tend to break things. You tend to stub your toe, right? It's dangerous to walk in darkness. But that's the description of all of us who have wandered away from God. We live in dark places. We have dark thinking. And it's, it's like, is there, is there any light out there for me to follow? If you've ever been in a dark place, the good news is a wonderful counselor is still with us, even in the dark. Look at verse 3. It says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so, remember, Isaiah's writing this to a people that are about to be conquered. There's famine in the land. There's oppression. There's social injustice. There's no joy in the land. But what he's saying is, there's going to be a wonderful counselor who will be with us, who will restore our joy. If you need joy this season, because of the circumstances around you, lean into the counsel of a wonderful counselor. Look at verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. Look at those word pictures. He mentions a yoke. You know what a yoke is? Not like an egg yoke. Like a yoke that, that you know, ties two oxen together. They're just stuck together. You ever been stuck? It, a yoke, and he mentions a staff and a rod of the oppressor. It's, it's talking about it's talking about these horrible addictions that, that, that lock us into bad behavior. And it could be addiction to, to, to a substance or it could be addiction to sex. It could be all kinds of bondages, things that oppress us. But then notice it says, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now most of it would just like, just keep going to the next verse because Midian would have no context for us, but for all of you that have been reading through the Bible in a hundred days, if you got to the word Midian in verse four, you would have remembered, I've heard this word before. Where in the Bible does it talk about Midian? Oh, I think I read that in the book of Judges, chapter six. Oh yeah, I remember that God's people had done evil in the eyes of the Lord and he had put them in bondage for seven years to the Midianites who had encircled them and it looked like there was no hope until God sent an angel and found a little man hiding in a little cave and an angel spoke these words to him. Here were the first words that God spoke to Gideon. The Lord is with you. Sound familiar? Do you see how the Bible all connects? You got to click on the hyperlinks. You got to go click on the hyperlinks and connect it all together. And so the Lord is with you. And then he says, oh, mighty man of valor. This little man hiding in a little cave, like a little girl. God calls him a mighty man of valor. And the reason he could be courageous is because there was a God who was still with him to break their bondage. And then finally, look at verse five. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What's all that about? These were people who were people of war. They were constantly in battles. Their boots were worn out. Their battle garments were bloody from war. And God says, when this wonderful counselor comes, there's not going to be any more war. We're, you're not going to need those garments anymore. All your wounds and scars and bloodshed will be over. It's going to be burned up. Let me ask you a question. You have any battle scars? You have any wounds from your past? Are most of those wounds self-inflicted because you wandered away from God and experienced the judgment of God? 
the wonderful counselor is going to come and he is going to give us direction that leads us out of darkness, restores our joy, breaks our bondage, and torches our past. All those bad decisions and bad choices and bad circumstances, by God's grace, are going to be burned up. That's the gospel. That no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've strayed from God, there is a wonderful counselor who is still with us. And we have to respond to his counsel. The second name that's given is not only a wonderful counselor, but it's a mighty God. Remember, he's speaking of this little child. This child shall be called a mighty God. What do you think of when you think of God? Holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, unapproachable, transcendent. He's not like us. Now listen, when the Hebrew people heard this, this was a shock because they were very strictly a monotheistic people. What I mean by that is they only believed in one God, which is what we believe. But for them to hear that there was going to be a child born and his name was going to be Almighty God, this was unlike any other birth. It was unlike any other birth announcement. That's one of the reasons why Muslims don't really get Christianity. Our Muslims friends, they're like, I, you, you guys believe in three gods, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Like, no, you don't really understand. Just one God, three persons, just one God. Jesus was not ashamed to associate himself with the name of God. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. Now, it's a big word. I've explained this to you before. It just simply means this. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ without ceasing to be God. God was 100% man and 100% God. Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. He was, he was man with a human body, he was God with a human body wrapped around him. As the representative man, he could live the life, the representative life that you and I should have lived. And as God, he could bring us into the Father's presence. Now, think about this. Jesus made himself vulnerable. He didn't just come to earth. He became an embryo that resided for 40 weeks inside of a human being whom he created, by the way. He created his own mother. He made himself that vulnerable. J.I. Packer goes on to say this, it is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh, God became man, the divine became the divine became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and talked to like any other child. God made himself vulnerable. And he did that so that he could experience the same stuff that we experience. Sometimes we think, Jesus, it, it's like, if you knew how bad it was down here, you, you'd fix it. No, it's like, I've been there. By the way, did you ever have nails go through your hand? Because I got that too. So I don't know what pain you're struggling with. Jesus can sympathize with it. He's not just some transcendent God. He's a God who became man. And because he became man, God became accessible to us. The stuff I'm telling you right now, is hard to believe. Turn to your neighbor and say, hard to believe. It's hard to believe. If, you're not, if it's not hard to believe, you're not thinking deeply enough. I am talking about miraculous spiritual truth that most of the world finds as believable as Santa Claus. How many of you still believe in Santa Claus? Raise your hand if you still believe in Santa Claus. He was like, now, there are some children in the room. You might want to cover their ears right now. But um, listen, um, 
I don't believe in Santa Claus. Does that shock you? Does that disappoint you? I, I, don't, I don't mean that I don't believe that he doesn't exist. I mean, I don't believe in Santa Claus. I don't find him inspiring. I don't find him compelling. He has this naughty and nice list. And it's like the, 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 the naughty kids don't get any gifts. And it's like, you know, you're not supposed to laugh or cry around him at any time, I guess, because he, you know, he's, got, he's, he's checking it twice, too, to find out who's really naughty. It's like, there's no grace with Santa Claus. I, I hope you don't believe in Santa Claus. And, and you've heard it before, but, you know, you, you, you kind of go through these stages of belief with Santa Claus. When you're a kid, you believe in Santa Claus, right? You should believe in Santa Claus when you're a kid, right? But then you grow up and you realize, I don't believe in Santa Claus. So you believe in Santa Claus, then you don't believe in Santa Claus. Then there's this third stage of life when you are Santa Claus, um, and, you know, because your kids believe in Santa Claus. So you've got to become Santa Claus. And then there's this final stage of life is when you look like Santa Claus. So anyway, that's kind of the progression of life there. Now, those are the stages of believing in Santa Claus. There's also some stages in believing in God. So let's be honest about them, okay? Now listen, when you are born into this world, you don't believe in God. Here's what you believe. When you're first born in the world, you believe you are God. You believe you are Almighty God. And it's amazing how much power and sovereignty you have as a little child. You scream and people come running and they give you food. They give you gifts and shelter and clothing that you don't deserve. And it ends up feeding your belief that you can control people. You can believe that everybody else should bow down and worship you and everything that you say they should do. And we kind of grow up. That's kind of the first five years of life, right? You just believe you, you are sovereign. You're, especially if you're in a child-centered home where everybody did so much stuff for you, you can feed that into your child. You don't want to do that, okay? But eventually you, you kind of grow out of that. You go into the second stage when you believe there is no God. I mean, let's be honest. We've all had doubts about the existence of God. Because, I mean, after all, you went to eighth grade science class, right? And they told you how, you know, there was this primordial soup and, you know, over long periods of time, there time and chance and all that stuff. And there was really no design to any of this. And that stuff, that puts stuff in your head. And it's like, and you look at the world and you see all this pain and this agony and suffering in the world. And if God was really God, if it was God, he'd do something about that. And I couldn't believe a God that, you know, would make that stuff happen. And so everybody goes through those questions. You have to work through those things. Hope you don't get stuck there. You go to the next stage and you believe in many Gods, gods with little g's, okay? And I'm talking about like, if, because God made your heart to worship and if you're gonna deny the existence of God, guess what? You're just gonna pick another God. You're gonna pick the God of sex or the God of entertainment or the God of sports or the God of money and you're gonna start worshiping other gods and pretty soon those don't fulfill. You're, you're like, I got a hole in my heart and you hopefully you graduate out of that and you eventually get down here, yeah, I believe there's a God. But is he knowable? And I'm sure that he just kind of, he's kind of like a grandfather. He's kind of like Santa Claus. We believe in God kind of like he's Santa Claus. He gives good gifts to nice people, but if you're naughty, you better not be naughty because God doesn't like naughty people. This is a passive kind of a belief that cannot save you and cannot change you. But there's one more step and it's the only step that has the power to transform your life. It's when you finally come to the place where I believe Jesus is Almighty God, the only exclusive Son of God who came as God to do what only God could do to shine light in my darkness break my bondage, restore my joy, and give me eternal life. Even though I've wandered from him, he came into my world as my God. A mighty God is still with me. That is the only kind of belief that can save you. This is a belief that requires repentance. It requires worship. It requires you treating Jesus as God because God the Father treated Jesus as if he'd committed my sin. And that's why he had to endure the pain on the cross is to 
absorb my sin so I could absorb his love. He is a mighty God who is still with us. Have you received him? Have you graduated beyond this vague spiritual belief? Have you graduated beyond the fact that you act like God and expect everybody in your family to bow down and worship you and agree with you all the time? You've tried to control everybody around you. Repent of that. You got to get down here where you understand I am not mighty. I am not God. Jesus is. That's the Christmas story. You receive him as the gift because he was given to us as a child who is God. The third name that Isaiah mentions here is this. There's an everlasting father who is still with us. And again, he's speaking of a child, but he calls him an everlasting father. This helps us understand the nearness of God. He's not just some distant almighty God out there. He is an everlasting father that is present and personal and relational and approachable and loving. It's staggering to think about the fact that God would invite us to call him Father. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have a father? Raise your hand. Okay. When you think of your father, what is the one word that comes to mind that best describes your father? Don't say it. Just think it. If you had to describe your father in one word, what would that word be? Got it? Now let me ask you this. How many of you thought of a positive word? Raise your hand if that was a positive word. Okay. Now if you weren't able to raise your hand, I am so sorry. Do not allow your experience with your earthly father to keep you from coming to Jesus as your everlasting father. Fathers are the source of life. Fathers are a source of love. Being a father involves interaction and dependency. The father is the pace setter and the peacemaker and the initiator and the visionary for the family. A father embraces responsibility. A father, a good father is committed to his family. A good father keeps his promises. He loves and protects and provides for his children. He lovingly guides and corrects and teaches and instructs his children. He never gives up on them. He rescues them from danger. A father blesses his children with an inheritance. A good father communicates his heart. A good father imparts wisdom. He conf confronts foolishness in his children. He expends energy to move toward his children when they are expending energy running away from him. He enjoys and delights in his children. A good father gives time and attention to his children. And a good father expresses hope for his children no matter what they've done. Now, if that was not your experience, Jesus invites you to come to him as the everlasting father. Are you a child of God? This time of year, we hear a lot of celebrities and people say, oh, we're all children of God. No, we're not. We're all creations of God. We're all stamped with the image of God. But only those who have been adopted into his family by faith are children of God. That's why John chapter 1 verse 12 says this. It says, All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Only those who receive him have the right to call him father. And if you have received him, if you've believed in his name, by the way, what was that name? Emmanuel, God with us, everlasting father. Now you have a right to be called the children of God. That means you get an inheritance. That means you get his protection. 
That means that God is there to, to make himself available to you. And he's approachable. He wants to hear your request. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an interesting Greek word. It, best translation for us in English would be Daddy. That's the kind of intimacy that God brings to those who know him. Do you have that kind of intimacy with God? Or is he just kind of distant and cosmic and unknowable? Jesus invites you to come to him and become one of his children. Here's the last title. It's the Prince of Peace. A Prince of Peace is still with us. Since the beginning of recorded history, did you know that there's only been 8% of the time that the world was completely at peace with no wars going on? In 6,000 years of recorded history, there have only been 286 years without wars between mankind. There's been over 8,000 peace treaties signed and just about as many that have been broken. Is there peace on earth? It's one of the messages of Christmas, right? The angel announced there will be peace on earth. Is there peace on earth? It kind of goes back to the chart, right? It's we're living in time in between. There's peace, but you know the only place on earth there is peace is in the heart of those who have made peace with God. There will be no peace on earth until everyone on earth has made peace with God. Our hope for peace is not in peace treaties. It's not in stricter gun laws and weapon control and denuclearization. That's not the hope for peace. Um, we found out very early in the Bible that men will pick up stones and throw them at each other and kill each other, right? So the hope for peace on earth is for everyone on earth to have peace with God. So what is peace? Let's give it a definition. Peace, a calm assurance that overcomes chaos and hostility on the outside because Jesus is reigning on the inside and Jesus reigns on the inside as a prince of peace. That's who he is. We're commanded in Scripture to let the peace of Christ dwell in in our hearts. So here's the promise. For those of us who receive Jesus as a Prince of Peace, wars can rage. Storms can topple everything. It doesn't matter the hostility and the chaos that's going on on the outside because of the peace on the inside. And if you've made peace with God, it motivates us to pursue peace with one another because God did everything necessary to pursue peace with me, I will do everything possible to pursue peace with others. So I have a question for you. Are you at peace with everyone in your family? Are you thinking of people who have offended you, hurt you, neglected you? Maybe you're even thinking of a father that abused you or was absent, you have peace. Maybe, maybe not because there's been a reconciliation of relationship, but just in your heart, you've released your father or your children or your mother-in-law or your boss or your former boss or your former spouse and everybody else who's offended you because of the great peace you have with God. Now, it is possible for you to pursue peace with others. You can extend that circle beyond your family to your coworkers, beyond your coworkers to your church family, beyond your church family to the world, your neighbors, those who have political differences and those of different socioeconomic backgrounds and different belief systems. Because of the peace reigning in our hearts, we can extend peace on earth. 
I want to invite you to stand with me right now. I want to read to you the final verse here this morning. Verse 7 just simply says this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you hear what Isaiah is saying? There is zero percent chance of this not happening. There will come a day. We anticipate it with great expectation. The second advent, the second coming of the Lord, where we will see the Prince of Peace conquer the kingdoms of the world, not through violence, but through grace and goodness. Of course, he's going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with sinners. We can read all about those things. But if you are his child, he's a Prince of Peace. He's an everlasting father. He's a wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. He's worthy of our worship. Let me invite you to bow your heads here for just a moment. How are you going to respond to what you've heard today? Maybe for you, when you think of Christmas, you think about a manger scene and a little vulnerable, helpless baby. And maybe that's the way you have thought about Christmas. It's time to grow up a little bit and to think about that baby who grew up to die on a cross, to rise from a grave, who one day will establish his government not only on earth, but in our hearts. Is his kingdom and his government expanding and increasing in your own heart, in your own life, in your own influence? Father, in Jesus' name and by your spirit, we are so grateful that you have made yourself Emmanuel, God with us. And in, in a year when it's tempting to wonder Have you forsaken us? Have you left us? We hear your promise today to sing that you are still with us. You're still accessible for those who will repent and believe. God, would you show yourself to be a wonderful counselor for those who need counsel? Those who are walking in darkness, would you show yourself to be a mighty God for facing overwhelming circumstances? Would you show yourself to be an everlasting father to some who have been neglected, even abused. God, show yourself to be the Prince of Peace, making peace in our hearts through Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.